up on this week's show how to give your Dreamcast games a speed boost. A floppy disk full of Nintendo secrets has been found. And we talk all things retro with John Linneman from Digital Foundry. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the Game Boy, you need to check out Game Boy The Box Art Collection, a vibrant celebration of some of the finest cover artwork for the monochrome marble, spread across 372 pages. You can check that out and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 279, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another packed episode all about retro gaming, retro tech, computers, games that we grew up playing, the companies, the people that brought us all of those classic memories. And of course, we keep you updated on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology over the last week. And if actually Joe and I sound a little bit laid back today, it's because actually, coincidentally, we're both on a week off at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, well, it's funny because we always actually have the same week off because of my birthday is the day before your wife's birthday, isn't it? Yeah. So we ended up always having the same little bit of time off together, which is quite funny. We usually end up doing some birthday celebrations or something, getting a little bit drunk. By the sounds of it, Joe's been going to every zoo in the country. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On a zoo tour. I've been on a zoo tour in my week off. Now, I went to um, Yorkshire Wildlife Park. Only a couple of days ago, and then I've been to Twycross Zoo today, <laughs> and then uh, I'm going to White Post Farm, which is on the outskirts of Nottingham as well, later this week. I'm seeing all the family members, because you know, because lockdown's kind of like easing and stuff like that, you know, and I've had a baby in lockdown, and the grandparents want to see her and want to do stuff, so yeah. it's just like, oh, Joe's got a week off, let's get him. They're great outdoors though, Joe. Well, while you've been doing that, um, I've been indoors. Um, yeah. I've got my, my soldering iron and my uh, 32X. I'm determined to get that working on my uh, Mega Drive. I've got one of those weird revisions that, you know, it actually needs a few ferret beads taken off for it to work properly. So. Oh, really? I always just assumed your 32X worked fine. No, no, no. It's a yeah, flickering screen on it. So that's going to be my job tonight. And then um, hoping to use a nice weather tomorrow to do a bit of retro brighting as well. So nice. yeah, cramming it all in this week. <laughs> but this, even though we're on a week off, doing this doesn't feel like work, nah, does it? No, not at all. I look forward to it every week. I look forward to hanging out with my friends, even though it's, you know, over the internet. I'm still hanging out with my two of my best friends every week. Online friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, you know what, we are getting, um, I'm getting like my home studio built. So hopefully this summer at some point we can uh, finally get back together and do a show again in person. Well, maybe for episode 300, Dan. That'll feel weird, but yeah, Yeah. definitely looking forward to that. (laughs) But of course, it's not just us guys on the show. We bring you a special guest each week as well. And this week, even though I said it's not just us guys, it does feel like this guy's a friend, doesn't it? Because not only have we watched him on YouTube for years, but also the conversation that you and I had with him, Ravi, just so laid back, just like a couple of guys, a couple of mates chatting about our memories. Well, it's amazing when we get listeners off the show that are actual guests as well. It's like yeah. uh, Inception or something. But this this was a fantastic chat. It's uh, with John Linneman from um, Digital Foundry. And... Digital Foundry is like part of Eurogamer and he set up Digital Foundry Retro. And I don't know if you've seen that. It's called DF Retro on YouTube. Mm. And some of these videos are insane. They're like proper looks at the games in depth. Like you would not believe. And John, 
he's he's a good fan. He he loves CRTs. He loves odd systems. You and him have a little Atari Jaguar chat. We're chatting about the 3DO, all the obscure consoles, and uh, just also like general retro and like what's going to happen in the future with stuff like events and uh, his personal history as well. Because he was an American and then he moved over to Europe, so he had that kind of american scene and then yeah. came to europe and suddenly like who are all these european gaming characters and uh you know who are these heroes and like what's turrican you know <laughs> what's a demo scene and what are all these weird computers that you know the kids had instead of nintendo's over here so um yeah it is a really good chat and like you said ravi he's um he goes very in depth he's actually nicknamed uh, the human fraps because he can look at a screen on a retro game, work out the frame rate and the resolution and everything just by looking, which I think is incredible. Ooh, a little bit like a Rain Man there. <laughs> yeah, it's like his knowledge is just insane. So, uh, well, one of, one of the things he does is he looks at ports for every single game. So he's recently he's just done one about Quake, and it's like the technology and the legacy and the ports as well and then he's done a really big video about doom as well where he's looking at every single port of doom and all the differences and really interesting stuff and you know they're huge videos they're like an hour long nice. yeah i watched the entire doom one last night actually again second time <laughs> I've preparation seen it, but, <laughs> yeah i, I thought I'd, I'd just watch a couple of videos then uh, yeah like three or four hours later i'm still there oh that looks interesting let me just click that one as well um, so he is such an interesting guy. John Linneman from Digital Foundry is our special guest, and he'll be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, there's lots of new stories we need to get into. Before we do, though, it is still really warm here in the UK. We did get some tweets last week of people going, oh, 25 degrees, that's nothing. I live in Vegas. It's like 40 degrees Celsius at the moment, but <laughs> we, we can't take the heat. And literally, the minute we get back from a long day out and you get out in the garden in the sunshine... Isn't it just nice to crack open a nice beer 52? Have you got one at hand, Joe? I haven't. I just thought oh, You drank them all. I have drank them all. <laughs> Me and my father-in-law drank them last week after we did a bit of gardening. I hate gardening. I'm not going to lie. I hate mowing the lawns. I How hate, dare you, know, you, Joe? Trimming the bushes and all that kind of stuff. But you know what was really nice? And, and, and me and my father-in-law, we're not, we're not massively close or anything. But he actually, we sat down in the garden after we did it. And he said, you got any beers? And it was really nice to just sit back and have a couple of beers, you know, just at hand kind of thing. And I could tell there was that kind of like bonding moment over it, you know, sat in the sun mm. after doing the gardening. You could say, uh, I have a case of eight craft beers. I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. I was like, funny you should say that. He <laughs> had about three left by then. I, 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 I did have about, about, about four left. I had about four left. But yeah, it was nice. <laughs> well, this is our good friends at Beer 52. Now, we want to give you a free case of eight Belgian beers and all you need to do is pay the £5.95 postage and you will get an additional two free beers as well. So that is ten. What an incredible offer. So you're going to get that if you order before July 13th. Now, just to let you know about Beer 52, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And they've been big supporters of the Retro Hour podcast for a good few years now. And they're on a mission. They're experts find the best beer from anywhere in the world. And each month they visit a different country and find the best small batch breweries and sample their finest craft beers. And then they carefully create a case 
and send them out to their lucky members and get in these cases. I mean, we said it last week. It's like Christmas, isn't it, Joe, when you open up one of these? Yeah, man, it is like Christmas. And I just, it's just nice to kind of go through and just be like, oh, I've got this. Oh, I've got that. Oh, I've got this, like a stocking or something. And of course, you always get a free snack as well, which I really like. I like the way that you can choose a dark beer or a light option because I'm not really a dark beer guy. But uh, having those choice of light beers is really nice. And, you know, you usually when you buy beer, you get like six of the certain amount of, of the same kind of beer. With this, you have a choice and a different one comes each time. Yeah, and the options are endless. I mean, you know, it is just great and it really encourages you to try things that you wouldn't normally try. And especially now, you know, the weather's getting warmer, things are opening up. You might be having, you know, barbecues, having friends over, maybe watching the Euros, you know, that's coming up soon as well. So um, you need to get involved in this. So have a look at this link right now, beer52.com slash retro. Claim your free case of eight craft beers. And if you do it before July 13th, you will get an extra two beers totally free. No minimum commitment. You can just take the free case if you want, try it out, see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause and cancel at any time. So head on to that website right now. And of course, you'll be really helping out the podcast by doing that. Beer 52.com slash retro and a big thank you to our friends at beer 52 for their support of the show now the dreamcast is obviously it wasn't sega's most popular console but i think you know all of us guys would write the dreamcast in you know systems that we own that we love i mean you know it does feel like it's really been taken under the wing of the retro community over the last like 10 15 years and everybody loves a dreamcast and it's amazing how many new developments come out for it as well and now i don't know if you guys have watched this video someone's actually figured out this is a, a well-known dreamcast hacker called ian michael that you can actually use an sd card attached to the console serial port to actually give games a nice little speed up. Well, it's interesting because this technology has been around for years. So I remember when I had it and you could you could get these little cheap Chinese adapters that would fit into the serial port and you put an SD card in. But the key with this is he's got it caching. So when you have an SD card replacement for the CD-ROM... That's fine because that you need to take the whole CD-ROM mechanism out. You need to put the SD card replacement in. If you have one of these cheap little Chinese card ones for the serial, it never played the games at full speed. And, mm. and the problem with that was because it was directly accessing the cards straight away. Now, this is an improved version of one of these adapters where it actually caches it. So what it does is it, it loads up a lot of the um, information already and has it in a cache and then releases it to the console which is a really smart idea it's kind of you're still using the serial port but you're not just absolutely hammering it like the old ones did and what it means is because the dreamcast came with um i think it's like 16 megabytes of memory even for the day you know back in 1999 that was quite a small amount of ram but using this he's actually managed to load game assets into the system's ram and cache them on the sd card so that means um, there's a video here that I'll link up in the show notes. He's showing off a port of Doom running at 640 by 480. And already there's stuff in there like, you know, extra textures in there and the frame rates are improved over the um, the stock machine. And he also reckons he's going to do um, Quake and Hexen as well. And he reckons with further optimization, it should be able to run at a solid 30 frames a second, much higher resolution and, you know, much smoother than games previously could run on it. Yeah, I remember having one of these old Chinese ones and I, I think I was playing Soul Blade and it was like, <laughs> you know, it was, it, yeah. was, it was really laggy. And uh, this is really smart, actually, just having it loaded into RAM and then accessing it via that. 
And uh, yeah, having FAT32 cards as well, it's like easily accessible and you can put it onto your PC. And then uh, I guess he's just going to continue going through and uh, optimizing each of these individual titles. From what I've seen, I haven't got one of the um, serial SD card adapters, but I think they're quite low priced, aren't they? At the moment, at least, anyway. I think mine was like 16 quid, the original one. Yeah. But I don't know how much <laughs> these ones would be. But uh, yeah, I think it, they were mega cheap. Yeah, much cheaper than getting something like a GDMU, which is a replacement for the uh, CD-ROM, an SD card replacement. Yeah, now there's this really cool new use for it as well. I imagine the uh, the demand is probably likely to uh, quickly go up, I imagine, over the next few weeks. So uh, I'd get your hands on one while you can. Now, this next one was submitted to us by um, someone in our Discord, actually, Destroyed007, um, regular chatter in our Discord channel. And if you do spot any news stories, there is actually a dedicated channel in our Discord where you can leave them for us. We'll have a look at them. And then, uh, you know, if we think they're good for us to talk about, they'll make the show as well. So if you want details for our Discord, you'll find those on our website at theretrohour.com. And this actually ties into an episode that we did just a few months ago, actually, with Marcus Lindblom, who was the original translator of Earthbound, um, translated that to the American audience, didn't he? Mother, it was originally in, in, um, in Japan. But now he's found a floppy disk 26 years later, that's crammed with a load of lost Earthbound secrets. Well, if you think about it, like, you know, a a floppy disk isn't going to hold that much information Mm. on it. But uh, this is a very text-heavy game. And they're saying that um, there's enough code on there that ROM hackers could look at it and see which bits of the code were kind of relating to an asset or, oh, okay. or relating to something on the on the ROM originally, and then they could recreate this whole scene. So the, the disc doesn't actually contain any art, sprite or textures, but um, it's, just... it's got dense script on it. Right, so it's missing script. So so was this so is this missing from the just the translation or is it missing from the actual main game as well i think i think these are brand new scenes basically the the rom hackers have managed to put together from this disc yeah the story is with this uh disc so marcus obviously he did the translation Mm. back in the early 90s and he had a floppy disc that had a lot of the original scripts on there and stuff he was working on and there was also things that didn't make it into the final game as well so it was you know a lot of the kind of prototype scripts and stuff were on there too um english versions japanese text on there as well and even code on there that did event triggers and stuff in the game too. But he had this floppy disk and after he finished the game, he formatted the disk and used it just for like, you know, something else. He put like another file on there, not thinking that it was going to be valuable or even interesting to look at in the mm. part, in the future. Um, and then he found this disk, looked at it and thought, oh, I remember what was on that. And he sent it to the guys at the Video Game History Foundation who yeah. have used some of their trickery and actually pretty much unformatted the disk. So it turned out he only had one little file on there that was overwriting the information on there. But with their forensic tools, they could get all the other sectors back. And then they found all of these files that he used when he was doing this translation, you know, 30 years ago now. So it is insane that, you know, all this stuff was kind of lurking on this disc that he thought, he'd, you know, was long lost. Because if you guys ever remember, because I remember doing like schoolwork on floppy disks and everything, the amount of times I lost school homework. Because, you know, I'd take a disc from home into school or whatever, and then suddenly you couldn't read it. And, you know, you could probably actually write your essays again in the time it took the IT department to mess around trying to recover them. I used I'm to amazed. take my floppy disks apart being an absolute idiot when I'm, like, playing with, you know, playing <laughs> with them and everything and just actually getting the floppy disk out and then being like, oh, it doesn't work. I have to put it back together. 
After you've licked it. <laughs> I, I think it's amazing that the disc has lasted this long itself. You know, we must have kept it in some good storage. And even more amazing that they can go back to a previous version. It shows that, you know, the kind of deleting or the overriding wasn't really that, that, that big. You know, I know they can look in hard drives for previous data files and stuff. It's, it's pretty amazing when you delete something. It's never really gone, is it? No, exactly. Whenever I take a hard disk out of a machine, I always whack a nail with a hammer through the centre of it because, you know, it is easy for people to, if they've got the right tools, to do these kind of undeletes. Um, but it is really good to see that kind of this, you know, lost stuff about Earthbound has been found. Like you said, I mean, it is a franchise that's got a real hardcore fan base. So finding out these um, previously unheard secrets about the game and if you want to read more um the video game heritage foundation have actually done a really long blog post several pages long and there's also uh, like a half an hour video talking about all the discoveries and the different story arcs and stuff that they found in here as well so definitely worth a look if you're a fan of earthbound i love that ravi said he probably kept it you know stored it really nicely i bet it was in a shoebox in his attic or something (laughs) (laughs) and he just was just rooting around up there looking for stuff it doesn't make you wonder what other secrets kind of lurk in people's attics and uh, long-forgotten shoeboxes, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, very cool news. Now, there does seem to be a bit of a trend at the moment about these uh, mini arcades that are coming out, and there is another one that's just about to be released next year. Yeah, so this is the Egret 2 Mini. Uh, I hope I said that right, but this is essentially Taito's kind of answer to the mini consoles. Uh, so Taito, obviously, a really big Japanese arcade you know manufacturer um developer in the 70s 80s and 90s so the original bubble e- bubble space invaders yeah bubble bubble space invaders um i wanted to say centipede but it's not it's arkanoid um there's a couple of new ones. zealand story i remember yeah yeah, yeah new zealand story rainbow island games as well um so you know they were they were really big in japan um i've got the ps2 compilations as well which i i really like them and i really like bubble bubble but yeah, this is essentially their answer to the mini, you know, the mini home console. So the Egret 2 Mini, it's really similar to the Sega Astro City uh, Mini that came out last year. But what's really interesting about this is the original arcade machine had a rotating uh, screen. So the screen kind of pops out and then you can rotate it. So it's, you know, horizontal or vertical. Um, so depending on what, you know, kind of games were being loaded into the arcade machine in the nineties. So, you know, if you were playing bubble bubble on it, then you'd have to screen, you know, horizontal, but if you were playing space invaders on it, you know, then, you know, the, the owners of the arcade would switch it and, you know, pop it out. So it was a uh, vertical. And what's really cool about this is they've put that in the mini version. So you can pop the screen out and rotate <laughs> it, which I think is really cool. You know, maybe it's a, you know, a little, you know, maybe it's a little gimmicky and stuff like that. But if you're a hardcore fan, you know, of like, these arcade machines and these mini machines and stuff like that. I think that's, you know, really, really quirky. It's also got um, some pull-out controllers. And and th- there's an optional one here, which has like a dial on it and a trackable. Yeah, yeah. So I was about to say that, and also on top of all that, yeah, you've beat me to the punch there. Um, so obviously it comes with a, um, a micro switch, um, you know, the nice clicky arcade stick and an eight button, you know, arcade controller built into it but as ravi says you can also plug in additional controllers and they've doing three additional controllers like a normal kind of snes looking one another arcade stick one and then as ravi just mentioned one with a trackball and the um the dialer the dial on there you know which you would play like original pong and stuff like with which i haven't seen on any of these like mini you know mini consoles yet or anything like that so it's not coming till next year uh, but they have confirmed there's going to be 40 games on there 
and they've confirmed one, two, three, four, five, six games which would work with the trackball and the dial as well, which is strike bowling, arkanoid, plump pop, Sil- Silvalion, I think that is. Uh, violence arkanoid, fight. Violence good. fight, yeah, that's going to be on there. <laughs> arkanoid returns. And um, is that is that cam- camel try? C- camel try. <laughs> um, we'll put the full list of the games um, <laughs> in our show Camel notes. try and pronounce it, Joe. Camel try. I'm not going to try and pronounce all of these, but I think it's interesting, like, you know, we're seeing a lot of these kind of mini consoles and mini arcades and stuff at the moment, you know, all off the back of the NES and the SNES one and stuff. It looks a bit bigger than the other ones as well. It um, does. Just slightly bigger, but, you know, some of the other ones looked unplayable because they were so small. Yeah, and the, the they're saying the controllers from the kind of like the drops, the mock-ups and stuff, the, you know, the trackball and crouch hole and stuff like that does look, you know, kind of in between a normal-sized console controller and then like a sit on your lap arcade controller so you know it's 240 by 100 millimeters yeah so, so yeah it is yeah so, it's, it's you know, pretty it's decent size pretty decent size so it's not you know it's, it's probably going to be what like twice the size of like your traditional kind of playstation controller but not like a huge you know over your lap lap tray kind of arcade stick so it's pretty interesting um i think a lot of collectors will probably want to get their hands on these but i've got a feeling it's going to be like the the astro city mini where it's probably only going to be available in japan and if you want to get it in the UK, you will be able to get it off Amazon, but it'll probably cost like 200, you know, 200 quid or $200 or something like that. But it, it does look interesting. Yeah. And I wonder if that, um, you know, the rotating screen mechanism, whether that's kind of added to the price. Because I imagine, you know, it would have been easier just to stick a, a normal little display in there without having that. That's probably bumped it up by 20, 30 quid or whatever. Yeah, more than likely. So I've, I've actually, funny enough, I've just been saying this. I should have done my research first. I have just Googled it and I have found the price. So it's going to be $170, so 18,000 yen for mm. just the cabinet itself. Um, it's, if you want the expansion controllers, they are $110, so 12,000 yen for the trackball one or $80 for the arcade stick one or $30 for the normal gamepad one. Um, or if you want the full, full bundle four hundred and fifty dollars so it's not going to be cheap it's going to be cool, again though cool it's a though. niche thing though isn't it yeah it's, it's very niche yeah yeah so i think you know people that were big fans of those and always wanted an arcade in the collection it is going to be a cool little collector's item and i imagine rotating a, f- a five inch lcd screen probably a bit easier than rotating a 19 inch crt in the original yeah i would have i would have liked to have seen that happen you know, like yeah. I, I can't imagine it's like a oh, let's play a bit of Space Invaders now, and they just kind of like do it. I'm assuming it's like you got to put the key in, and like the front probably came off, and you know it was probably a big job, like a big two man job or something. And <laughs> they probably just had you know so many of them set up for years on end. They all play Bubble Bubble, they all play Space Invaders, but you know it would have been cool to see it. Well, talking about making things smaller, we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, these fan efforts of shrinking down living room consoles into handhelds. We had the uh, the GameCube we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Someone did the Wii as well. What about this? A Commodore 64 into a Game Boy form factor. This this looks quite nice. It's like um, PCBs basically layered up. So you've got like... Sandwiched. Sandwiched, that's the word, yeah. And uh, you haven't really got a case or a surround on it, but um, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of use of technology because it actually uses the original C64 chipset. Now, you're probably going to have to get your C64 and take all the chips out and then solder them into this uh, board. But it's nicely laid out, and it looks... If, if you've got soldering skills, you'll be able to do it. 
I find um, it really interesting as well that they're using a Raspberry Pi Zero in there to emulate the 1541 floppy drive. And uh, it, again, it's got, like we said last week, a full QWERTY keyboard, which is always really impressive to see. It's got um, S-Video port as well, optionally, so you can have it outputting, uh, which is pretty cool. And a nice little D-pad, or you can have an analog joystick as well <laughs> added to it. So this is a cool little device. I don't know if it has batteries, because it says it's 12-volt um, power consumption. So. Yeah, apparently not. Um, there's no onboard battery with it. You could probably <laughs> so do that off a battery pack. You know, one of those um, ones that you get for, like, charging your phone or something. See, that's the thing. If you're doing something like, last week we talked about that Pico computer didn't we that was that little hackers machine which actually looks in many ways quite similar to this you've got again that full qwerty keyboard that again are very small you know you're gonna have to hit them with the, those your little finger. buttons like yeah really tidy you know I, I probably couldn't fit my sausage fingers in there i don't think um and then you've got the the d-pad and a couple of action buttons as well and then a screen above it looks very much like a game boy if you could imagine a black game boy with a keyboard but again the saying because this uses original chips I imagine they were probably a bit more power hungry than using something like a Raspberry Pi. So how long you get out of a battery pack using something like this, I'm not sure. You might need one of those huge battery packs, you know, if you've seen the really big <laughs> Car ones. battery. Yeah, not like a little <laughs> tiny one. You can get these huge block ones that are probably about the size of the um, unit itself as well. So have that taped onto the back and you have got your kind of Double handheld um, <laughs> C64. But still, that's that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, when you imagine the previous solution for having a Commodore 64 laptop was the SX64, that giant luggable that I think he's, he's allowed to plug in anyway. Um, this is definitely a lot more portable than that, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it looks like nicely done. And uh, let's see, how much it costs? Is it? Is it? It's €29.90 Euros 90 for the PCBs. Yeah, get a bargain. And this is, uh, if you want to read more about it, there's an article on Hackaday. And the good thing about this is, I mean, there are actually guides on how you can build homemade Commodore 64s as well, so you don't have to kind of butcher your, your original system for it. So, yeah, very cool. And it just seems like every week, you know, whether it's just because we've all been in lockdown for the last year, people are thinking, you know, looking around the, the machines in the house thinking, when I can finally go out, I'm going to really miss my Commodore 64. Well, what can I, I can make I bring it with into me? a handheld or a mini? Hmm, next you'll be getting like VC and all this stuff well well it's interesting you say that like everybody seems to be in lockdown but funny enough our next story seems to be not so much oh what can i put in handheld but what game can i completely remake well this is one of your favorites goldeneye 007 <laughs> remade from the ground up in far cry 5 there we go there we have it so this comes from a youtuber known as crollywood and essentially he's used the far far cry 5 create your own level build a level creator you know whatever you want to call it um to completely rebuild golden i 007 he's built every single level in the level editor and this has taken him a mammoth 1400 hours um over the last three years so he actually did start it long before lockdown but a three-year fan project this has been and this looks mind-blowing. Like, I've had a go on these level editors, and I, I I I enjoy Far Cry. I've got Far Cry 5. I completed it. You know, you have a little go on the level credit uh, level editor, and you, you kind of just make a big open map and, you know, stick a thousand enemies on there and put yourself in it with, like, infinite ammo for a laugh or whatever. But this is, like, the level of detail he's got in this is, like, 
just you know it just matches up perfectly with Goldeneye, um, which is really interesting because obviously earlier this year the Goldeneye remake that never kind of came out like ten years ago was obviously leaked and yeah. you know released for everybody to play. So I guess that could have been a bit like of a kicker for him. You know, he's sat here rebuilding, completely remaking it from the ground up. But yeah, these are out there for people to play as well um, on the arcade mode of Far Cry Five. So if you add Crollywood uh, on PSN. Um, his username being perfect dash dark 1982 the entire list of all the levels come up for you to play it on playstation 4 slash playstation 5 which is really cool it's and on kotaku there is a um, a couple of visual comparisons mm. with the original game and his remade version using far cry and the level of detail mm. bear in mind this is like a one guy project yeah how the hell has he done this? I, I don't know how he's done it. Because like I say, like I go on these, I go, on, you know, I have a play around on these level editors, editors and stuff like that. But like you say, it's not just like, it hasn't just like, oh yeah, there's a bit of a cave here and there's an enemy there. And, you know, oh, this, this game sort of looks like, this level sort of looks like facility or whatever. Like it's perfect. Like the amount of detail that's gone into the level editor is absolutely unreal. And I feel like he's made this on PlayStation as well. Like, because of you download them and play them on PlayStation on the you know through the PSN network. So mm. he must have made them on PlayStation. Like it's absolutely crazy. It's it's impressive for a one man job, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like it, it looks like obviously it looks very Far Cry because it's still in that mm. engine and it's still using all the textures and stuff like yeah. that. Um, like you know, there's curtains on the windows in one, and he's using kind of metal sheeting and stuff. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's he's got to like. Take a you few know, use use alternatives and stuff. But uh, wow, yeah, he's he's. I tell you what, he's done really accurately. It's it's the layout, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it hasn't got the huge golden eye kind of feel, but it's the layout and the kind of little little memory tri- triggers from each level. I think. Yeah, I think if you didn't, if you got somebody to play this and you you didn't say who was a fan of Golden Eye, you didn't tell them it was Golden Eye, they would straight away be like. This is Goldeneye. Do you know what I mean? They'd figure it out straight away kind of thing. Or if you just kind of sat somebody down and played this and said, oh, play this Goldeneye remake, you wouldn't question it. But then if you said, this is the new Goldeneye, they'd go, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it is it is amazing, though, that he's, he's just sat there and done this on a level editor. It shows how yeah. powerful that is. And it shows how creative he is, too. It kind of reminds me of when, you know, you see Minecraft levels and someone's built like the Starship Enterprise. Or Danny and it's like. <laughs> yeah it's like how have they done that some people are ridiculously talented it's so, crazy uh, and, and like you said it takes thousands of hours of yeah. dedication and i'm just like i can't even play you know a game for 45 minutes sometimes. <laughs> so yeah no hats off to the guy yeah, extremely impressive so you want to check that out i'll link that up and everything else we talk about in our show notes at the retrohour.com Now, before we chat to John Linneman, our special guest is coming up in the next couple of minutes. Just time to give a big thank you to another of this week's supporters, our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, I think it's fair to say we've all browsed the web using incognito mode. Definitely. On Google Chrome. (laughs) Buying (laughs) presents for my wife. (laughs) Well, do you know, Joe, that actually when you're using incognito mode, you're not actually private because, you know, you think about this, Chrome, you know, it's a Google product and we know the way that Google make their fortune by tracking your movements online and selling you advertising. I think, you know, Google earn more off like being an ad agency than anything else. And there's actually a $5 billion class action lawsuit against Google in California right now where, you know, some people are accusing Google of secretly collecting user data. And Google's defense is when you're incognito, you're not actually invisible. Yeah, you 
you still get completely tracked, don't you? Like it doesn't, what does it actually do? It does nothing. So you need things like ExpressVPN to actually keep yourself secret. Yeah, so this is our friends at ExpressVPN who actually will make sure that you're on the web as privately as possible when you're online. Don't use incognito mode. You're still getting tracked. Data brokers still buy and sell your data as well. But obviously ExpressVPN is going to protect you from all that. And it's the one that we use as well. And I rather use it all the time. Yeah, I love it. It's mainly your IP address. And uh, your IP address is kind of the main point that they use to harvest data. And uh, ExpressVPN means you get rerouted for an encrypted server and your IP address is actually masked and it makes it harder for third parties to kind of identify you and, you know, harvest your data. Thing is as well, it's really quick. Like, it's the fastest I've used and I I use it on my phone, use it on my TV, on my laptop as well and I have it set. So when I turn my laptop on, straight away Express opens and connects and, you know, it's so fast that sometimes I actually forget that it's on. Yeah, stream your HD videos, do everything you normally do online, completely fine. And like you said, it can work on any device as well, your phone, your laptop, your smart TV. All you do is tap one button and you're instantly protected. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy online, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN and the one that we trust, expressvpn.com slash retro. Use our exclusive link, help out the podcast, and you will get three extra months for free on a one-year plan. expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to ExpressVPN for their support of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, of course, we have a patron that we run to help out this show as well. And at the time of recording this, (laughs) what did we say last week? Can we make it to 200 patrons? We're now on 199 at the point of recording this week's show. I am thrilled I'm pleasantly surprised when Dan was like, let's do a big push to get to 200. I was like, oh, come on, man. The guys, the guys help us out so much. But I am, I am so pleasantly surprised that actually, you know, people pulled through and we're only actually one away, which is incredible. And I reckon by the time this week's show comes out, you know, we might have gone over the 200 by then. But re- I mean, the reason we're doing this is we have costs that we need to pay for. We have equipment that we need to buy. There is a lot that goes into running this podcast each week. And we've always said... We used to pay for it all ourselves before, which we didn't mind doing, but if you guys would like to help out, I mean, for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month or something, that is usually appreciated. It means, you know, we can focus on just delivering the show and not have to worry about where all the bills are coming from. That's the real reason that we do Patreon. Yeah, and also it's because we're an independent podcast, so we're not like yep. the BBC or any of these people where, you know, you've got someone with priorities going, right, let's cover retro. <laughs> it's like yeah. not good don't, at all. Don't you know? get started on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's 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 fantastic because you guys have enabled us to like get a studio and uh, keep going really. But you, you also get a reward for it. You know, we're not we're not just asking for money. We're, we're we're rewarding you with your kind of patronage. And what you get is an after hours podcast. So that's a whole new podcast as well, where we're talking off the script. We're talking about memories. We're talking about oh, what was it, the 2000s last time and games back then, how every piece of technology was silver. Um, We also talk retro gaming on that. You're also getting the Retro Hour patron meetups and they're fantastic. We have a meetup with all of the patrons, a nice chat. We've also got a private Discord channel. Um, You get a T-shirt. Yeah, which Joe's now joined. We've managed to convince him. I've entered the 21st century on Discord. (laughs) To get on Discord, yeah. So, 
yeah, please uh, help support the show. And, you know, we'll continue going with your guys' support, which is just fantastic. And uh, stay independent. Yeah, and that's and you also get the show early most weeks as well. I mean, up to two or three days early sometimes. Um, and you get it ad-free as a thank you for supporting the show. So we really appreciate anything you can do. We appreciate not everybody can, but if you can support the show and, you know, find a couple of quid a month uh, to put in the tip jar, essentially, and just to help us with our running costs, we'd really appreciate that. And for doing so, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, a big thank you to Simon Skogsgrud. Old school gamer magazine. Johnny Russo, Ian. Liam Carew. And Shane Toner. Who all made donations into our patron. Thank you so much for your support. It really does mean the world to us. And uh, you can, you know, thank yourself for keeping this podcast coming out each week. Thank you very much. And there will be links to our next patrons hangout that I think is coming up a week on Sunday. So next Sunday that should be. Um, I'll put all the details to that in our patrons so you can find that. And how to support the show, it's all on our website at theretrohour.com. Right, next we are going to talk about all things retro with the brilliant John Linneman from Digital Foundry. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on a very special guest. And today... It's going to be just incredible to talk to someone who is so on our wavelength. I mean, we're big fans of the work he does on YouTube. Let's welcome on John Linneman, who is the video producer, senior staff writer, and you'll know him from DF Retro. Hello, John. Hello, guys. How's it going today? Very good, thank you. And um, really appreciate you joining us to uh, geek out about all things retro for the next hour or so. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it, man. We always like to kind of go back to day one and kind of find out our guests' geek credentials and, you know, where it all started. Do you remember what originally got you into video games and computers then? Where, where did your journey begin? Yeah, I mean, I guess it goes back quite a ways. For me, it was the Atari 2600 slash VCS, actually. Um, we got a hold of one of those kind of in sometime in the mid-late 80s, I guess, when I was quite young. And I played a lot of games on there on a black and white TV in my room, so... Uh, that kind of kick-started the interest in it. But I think once we got our first PC, which was actually just an IBM PS2, Personal System 2, like Model 30 at home, I really started to dig into the world of like just computers and games and all that. Because, you know, obviously growing up in the U.S., uh, things like the Amiga, which uh, I had seen, were not really that popular. So it was IBM x86 for me. What kind of um, systems were there, like, just flying around then? Were there stuff like ColecoVision and uh, Magnavox and, uh, you know, stuff that we've not really heard of? Yeah, I mean, some of that stuff was there. I mean, that was really in the early 80s. And by the time I really remember getting into it, it was already kind of like late 80s time, you know, and the NES was out and everything. It was more like the 2600 was given to me because a cousin of mine got something better. <laughs> and that's So that's why I started with that. And then, you know, playing NES and all that and getting into the computer stuff. And it just kind of all started to happen around the late 80s there. And were you Um, trying your hand at programming then as well? Yeah, of course. Um, Doing some very basic, literally, things on there. You know, I kind of fell out of it for a little bit because once I actually started to get access to more games. But I think it was actually in the mid-90s, about 96, 97, I had to get a graphing calculator for school. That stupid little thing, for whatever reason, like it really caught my interest and I started making games on that thing. At first, you're just doing it in like basic and then uh, started digging into some of the assembly code on there to to try to do some rather fun and interesting 
surprisingly powerful games on what seems like a very underpowered device. And that was something I used to kill time with sometimes during class when I probably should have been paying more attention, but you know. What kind of titles stood out to you as a kid then? Like what was your kind of definitive game? It really, it really caught me. I guess some of the first games I remember really getting into actually was the Mega Man series, actually. Uh, you know, before that, there's there's been Super Mario Brothers. There'd been like Pitfall and uh, random old PC games. But stuff like some of the more modern stuff, I guess, on the 16-bit machines really caught my interest. And from there, you know, Super Mario World, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, it was really caught my interest. But I think uh, I've kind of mentioned this before, but the one that really, and this is probably the game that really sent me down this path that I'm on now. It was uh, Daytona USA in the arcade in like 94. Oh, nice. That I really remember making an impact because like I went to a local arcade. I saw this thing running. Uh, I was probably like 12 or 13 at this point. Right. So I, I'd been around video games, you know, Mega Man, Mario, all that, whatever, some PC stuff, but this thing, I mean, you guys remember that it was unbelievable to see this thing running for the first time uh full 60 frames per second just the most detailed visuals you could ever imagine it was like it it flipped a switch in my head i think at that point and i didn't even know what frame rate was at that point but i knew that it was smoother than any other 3d style game that i'd ever seen in my life and that kind of started this pursuit of that (laughs) for a long time (laughs) Those old school systems, how did you end up obtaining your knowledge and the displays back then as well? Was it really important having like a really decent display? Because we we had a lot of old systems just plugged into normal TVs and stuff. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the weird thing for me. In terms of actual display technology, uh, I didn't really have a chance to become picky about that until like years later in like the early 2000s. Because, you know, when you're younger, you don't really have much of a say in terms of what your family has, right? Like we had, we had a, like an RCA TV for consoles and it was like a 15 inch Packard Bell monitor on the PC. What I got with the 486, and, you know, you kind of upgrade here and there from then. But uh, in the US, especially for game consoles in general, composite video was like it, right? Like you guys had RGB. I've discovered that since moving to Europe, like, you know, a lot of older TVs and consoles, you know, you could buy RGB cables for them and it looked amazing. But for us, it was really composite video. And it wasn't until I guess it was actually the Sega Dreamcast where I really sort of changed my approach to video quality because I started using the VGA box on that thing. It was Uh, kind of a balance, wasn't it? It's like you guys got NTSC, which is a bit faster. And, and we got that, kind of oh, yeah. scarts and RGB. So. The, whole, the whole PAL thing, man. I, I mean, I was aware of it growing up there, but until I came over to Europe, I didn't realize just how much of an impact it had. Seeing like Sonic the Hedgehog running at 50 hertz in PAL, it doesn't have any of the updated music. The music speed hasn't been changed. So everything sounds slow. It's bordered. I couldn't believe it when I saw it for the first time. But I mean, back then, I guess if you didn't, CNTSC games you wouldn't have known yeah it was like that with me I mean I, I remember the first time I really realized that is when people started commenting on YouTube videos you know like well, why is the music running slowly and I'm like well it was always <laughs> like that for me you know this is how it's meant to sound but, exactly yeah <laughs> well you moved to um, Europe from America um, did you find that people rated their gaming idols and you know these kind of big titles were they different to what you grew up with yeah I, I mean obviously there was definitely still 
plenty of love for for Nintendo stuff, but that's the thing I discovered is Nintendo never really seemed to have hit it as big in Europe as it did in the US. Like everything was about Mario and Nintendo. And even though Sega obviously had a big market share in the early 90s with the Sega Genesis, you know, or Mega Drive over here, you know, it seems like Sega kind of conquered the console space in Europe. But then there was the whole PC side of things. And this is where I really didn't, wasn't fully aware of things. You know, obviously in the UK, the ZX Spectrum was huge. I've come to learn people have a ton of nostalgia for that. You know, yeah, all the Commodore stuff, the 8-bit computers, and then they got to the more advanced stuff like the Amiga. A cousin of mine had an Amiga, but that was the only thing I'd ever seen of that machine. And now I realize like, you know, over here, the Amiga was a huge deal. There was a lot of games on there. Stuff like Turrican, for instance, which I, I love and respect a lot now. But back then, you know, I wasn't that really tuned into it because it just wasn't a big title in the US. It must have been kind of confusing coming over and seeing like, you know, people talking about egg characters and... Oh my gosh, busy. Like, yeah, because <laughs> to be honest, like um, the, the European scene back then was a bit looked down on um, by the rest of the world. It, was, it wasn't kind of seen as high as the Japanese or the American scene. Yeah, I, I can kind of see what you mean. But, you know, I, I see that's this is what makes this, that time so exciting to me and so interesting to explorers because everybody was kind of growing up with their own thing and there was no determined standard for what what things should be like. Obviously, you had all the micros over here in Europe, but then Japan had its own set of computers. Obviously, you know, the uh, the PC-98, PC-88 were like the standards there versus like the IBM style PC in the US. And um, and then even with game consoles, once like, you know, the TurboGrafx-16, that was not a success in America. It barely had any presence in Europe, but as the PC engine, it was huge in Japan. And we just don't get that anymore. I mean, you have some machines that succeed more in one territory versus the other, but you know, everybody's kind of playing the same stuff, so to speak, or on the same platforms. And uh, you moved to Germany, right? So uh, the kind of computer culture there is is really huge and people are really into their hardware. Did you find that a kind of interesting approach as opposed to just kind of getting a console and playing on yeah. it straight away? I love it, honestly. It's been great. Actually, in general, the retro community in Germany, just across the board, has been just wonderful to interact with. I've met a lot of great people over here uh, and just kind of got a, a different appreciation for things. You know, obviously a lot of people still love uh, Japanese games, console games, that kind of stuff. But, you know, just getting more of a taste of the, the computer stuff, especially those early days when, you know, you hear stories about people going to these like demo parties and like creating just crazy imaginative things. And it's just, it's just wild, man. I love it. Yeah, the demo scene, I imagine, you know, it, to someone who maybe didn't grow up with it, must have been a bit weird to get your head around at first, I imagine. Yeah, dude, like first time I, I was like, realized, there, wait, there's a demo scene in this way? Like I knew people were doing this in groups, but I didn't realize just how much of like a, a cultural impact this had. And just like the, the demo parties and stuff, it was crazy, man. I love it. It's great. Well, when did you get interested in kind of, you know, tweaking games? And I know you've got the nickname, the uh, the human frap, so you can look at, you know, a screen and work out where slowdown's happening and frame rates and screen modes and that kind of thing. But when did you kind of get interested in that then and get passionate about it? Oh, man. I mean, I, I guess that was just like, 
probably mid 2000s kind of era, I started to get really sensitive to that stuff. I just found that I I could really pick up, you know, the performance characteristics of a game. And I was weirdly picky about it uh, in a way that a lot of others were perhaps not, which could be considered a bad thing, I guess. Um, but it was actually kind of, I mean, I'm sure we'll get more into it, but like, you know, uh, I was reading the stuff from Digital Foundry when it was first started up. I felt like, you know, he was tapping into things that I had been thinking about. I mean, I'd been doing comparisons on my own just for fun, uh, both of new and old games, and really paying attention to it. And I think it was, I, what really kicked it off was when we got to the PlayStation 3 era, and there was several times where I purchased a game on like PS3, like The Darkness comes to mind get it back and i realized the ps3 version is not good it was uh fundamentally just it didn't look great it didn't run well and i had to go through the whole jumping through the hoops to return it and get the xbox 360 version and that sort of made me conscious of this like uh oh man they're really i have to be careful about this and what i pick and i guess it just sort of you know brought that back to the forefront for me it's, it's- <laughs> It's like kind of setting up emulators, you know, you're sitting there, you're going through all the different screen modes and maybe dropping the resolution or or choosing a different option to get it uh, running. Did you often find yourself doing that more than playing the games? Uh, With emulators, not so much, but with PC games, absolutely. It actually got to be slightly annoying and, and made it difficult to occasionally enjoy PC gaming after a while because i would spend so much time trying to tweak every little thing uh you know you run into a new area for the first time and like up frame dropped and the first thing i do is like save the game and drop out and i'm going into the options menu tweaking things in windows just trying to figure out like all right where was that bottlenecking try to smooth it out uh so yeah it's it can be a little bit annoying from time to time but thankfully i feel like um i've managed to get better at just enjoying it's more just about consistency now yeah i i i'd be like a frame dropped i need to go and buy a new graphics card (laughs) (laughs) well how did you get involved with digital foundry then yeah so i mean like i said i i was a reader of df in the early days uh so i'd been following it for a while um but i guess it was around 2012 my wife and i decided to move to Europe. She's originally from France, wanted to go back. Um, and I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. So I left my job in the U S I'd been doing it stuff for a long time. Uh, you know, I got out of college with a CIS degree. I did all kinds of stuff, programming, database stuff, you know, server management, all that kind of good stuff, but it wasn't gaming related. And I knew that that's what I really loved. So when we left America, I basically got to quit my job and say, all right, well, let's see if I can find something else I'd like to do. And it just so happened that uh, Richard from Digital Foundry had posted sort of a help wanted ad, I I guess you could say, on the site. And I took him up on it and uh, he was quick to accept. He actually sent me sort of like a, a mini test, if you will, which was like, hey, we're working on Crisis 3 at the moment. Why don't you do a little analysis for me? Uh, and so I had to find all the differences there and sort of demonstrate that I at least knew what I was talking about somewhat. And he was happy enough with it and said, yeah, come on, come on aboard. And so I kind of started there, but you know, the early days, it was different. When I first joined in 2013, it was really just like, it was mostly text articles on Eurogamer.net. 
and we would only have a little bit of supporting video to showcase things like the frame rate. And then obviously over time, you know, it kind of helped push it more towards the video angle, which is what we do now. And that was like two years after I joined basically. And now, you know, video is the main thing that we do. When you initially started, were you surprised at how people took to this really in-depth game analysis? Yeah, I guess I I was happy and surprised at, at the attention it was getting. But the thing I quickly learned was that there was there's people that, that are genuinely interested in this stuff. But then there's also those that just want to use it as ammunition to, you know, I mean, the console war stuff has been around since the old days, obviously. I mean, you guys have been there. Uh, and it's still happening. And some people like to use what we find uh, to support their arguments one way or another. So uh, there is a lot of that happening. <laughs> and, you know, obviously your videos, I know you're a big advocate of um, CRT displays. Do you think that people often forget how good retro games looked on a proper CRT? Yes. So obviously that's a big thing. Um, I've done a lot of videos on the channel trying to highlight that. I talk about it regularly, but the thing that's I mean, it's difficult to communicate to somebody if you've either never seen a CRT, which is actually true of some folks, yeah, wow. uh, or <laughs> uh, it's been many, many years since you've seen it. You might forget the characteristics of what that type of display looks like. And I really think it's shocking when you show somebody this stuff again, you let them see it. Like every time I've shown someone, like say the motion clarity, like that's the main thing about CRT. You, you play something like Sonic the Hedgehog, on an LCD screen. And the second you start moving, it just smears, right? Like, I mean, that's just usually how it yeah. goes. Uh, you play it on a CRT and it's just crystal clear. Like it's perfectly sharp, no matter how fast you go. And when you see that in action again, I feel like everybody is convinced and kind of impressed. Yeah, I remember when I got back into retro, probably around like 2007, 2008, um, get my old machines down, but trying to, you know, got cables to hook them up to modern flat screen black plasmas or LCDs. And I remember trying about four or five different LCD screens and it just never looked right. And then one day I got my old Philips RGB CRT monitor down. I was like, that's how I remember the games looking. Yeah. So that's a weird thing. Like in the US, I kept CRTs around. I had been using them for my retro stuff. But when we first move over to Europe, I'm like, man, I can't take my CRTs with me. That's just too much to carry over here. So I tried switching over to like using a frame meister and I used that on a plasma TV and it looked good enough. And I kind of convinced myself like, yeah, this is fine. This is good enough. I can live with this. But I swear, like after two years of that, I just kind of reached this point where I'm like, I, I need a CRT again. Yeah. <laughs> and so the hunt began. <laughs> it's true, though, because, I mean, I often think, you know, people like to use real hardware rather than emulation. But then when you get to the bit that's, you know, the, the thing you're going to look at while you're playing your games, they're not going authentic with that last step. And that always seemed bizarre to me. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, <laughs> I get it, though. The amount of room needed to, to use a CRT, it's it's not insignificant, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of massive CRTs, um, one of the most popular uh, videos on DF Retro is um, the Sony FW900. So tell us about that display then and why that is so sought after <laughs> by collectors. Yeah, we uh, we kind of did that video on a whim because uh, my boss found one for sale nearby and I also managed to locate one and we just kind of jumped on it after hearing about it for so long. And I guess you could say the reason it's so legendary is because it's one, first of all, it's one of the only... PC monitors that was made in a widescreen format, right? So it's like, um, 
16 by 10 aspect ratio. So it's not quite the same as 16 by nine on a TV, but it's, it's wide, but it also supports these obscenely high resolutions for a CRT display. Like it's above 1440 P you can do refresh rates up to like 160 Hertz. And it's just, it's a big screen for that 24 inch CRT is uh, nothing to scoff at. It's a sizable display. So, you know, see, getting our hands on that was something that we had wanted to do for a while. And once we did, I felt like I, we just had to kind of talk about it because I think, you know, you often associate CRTs just with retro games and that's kind of like the main usage for it. Like the FW900 is not necessarily a machine or a, a display design for retro consoles, right? It's a PC monitor first and foremost. What made it interesting is using modern games on it. So you could hook up like a PlayStation 5 to one of these things and it's going to look really good and very, very clean in a way that you might not have seen before. And because there really aren't any other CRTs out there, or not many anyway, that are in that size and shape, it's become kind of sought after. But of course, when it was new, it was considered sort of professional gear. So there's not that many of them out there and they were always pretty expensive, I guess. I was reading today that apparently, like the you know, they reckon there's about two more years left in the used market of CRTs before they start to dry up. I always wonder if uh, you know maybe someone will get a crowdfunder together and a new company will start making them for us retro heads or something. Oh man, I've I've wanted that, but like looking closely into how CRTs are manufactured and the whole process behind it, it just feels like something that would be impossibly expensive and difficult to pull off. Because mm. like, have you guys seen what it takes to make? A picture tube it's serious yeah. <laughs> man it's it's a <laughs> it's not something that i think most companies or even smaller companies could undertake right now but i still hold out hope someday we'll find either an alternative to it or some way to get something like that made again and to think my dad used to smash them up with a sledgehammer in the garden oh, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, it's i think a lot of people did that's the thing <laughs> I oh. saw a Steve O video where he chucked one out of a building and I was like, no, <laughs> um, we'll see it. Yeah. Uh, you're kind of fascinated with the uh, 32X as well. I remember you did a video on uh, <laughs> every single title and which one was like using the power of the 32X and, and which one wasn't. What What are your kind of favorite titles on that system and, and why so do you a, like it so much? Well, that's so that's the thing is I have a general fascination with all these old machines, right? I like them all. Uh, but I do have a soft spot for the 32X. I don't think it's a great machine by any means, right? But it's still a Sega system, and it has some good Sega games. So obviously, you know, it has very good conversions, especially for the time of, like, Afterburner and Space Harrier, of course, which you couldn't match on any other home system at the time. Uh, I do like Knuckles Chaotix. It's a little bit, well, chaotic, if you will, but it's a cool game. Uh, Shadow Squadron is really good, sort of a space sim title made in Japan. Got a very cool vibe to it. Uh, Virtua Racing is is really good. It's significantly better than the uh, Genesis or Mega Drive version and better than the non-Sega developed Sega Saturn version. Um, You know, stuff like that. And Virtua Fighter is solid on there. And there's a few other titles here and there. Like, it's not an amazing library, but there's enough good stuff on there that it is interesting. And I do think the library is probably better overall than the Atari Jaguar, which 
I also enjoy in Collect 4. I saw the video you did about um, comparing all the different Doom versions, and uh, that oh, actually man. came out pretty well on the 32X, I thought. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was better than the 3DO version. I mean, the whole story behind the yeah. 3DO version was crazy, but it is better than that and better than like Super NES, I'd say. And Yeah, it's not bad. Well, we've got uh, two Jaguar collectors here. Dan collects as well, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you've actually been to Jagfest, right? Which I've, is yes, yeah. I've been to Jagfest. Uh, I mean, obviously not last year for you know reasons, <laughs> but before that, yeah, I think it was like the last three or four years I had gone. It was a lot. What, of fun. What, what's it like? Because uh, uh, we've we've only kind of been to Amiga events and uh, big video game ones, but oh, Dan needs to get to Jagfest, doesn't he? Jagfest right. <laughs> is relatively small, but there's a lot of really nice, really cool people there. A lot of folks like in the scene, like doing programming work on the Jag. Also, stuff with the links, like you know, developers still making games on those platforms. Uh, some of these guys bring over like prototype hardware. Like we got to see, I think it was the Panther, the 32 bit machine that wasn't released. They had like a Panther dev kit there and the manuals for it. They brought the Jaguar VR one time, uh, stuff like that. Plus, you know, there's fun tournaments throughout with very Atari inspired things. Like, have you guys played eight player checkered flag on the Atari links? No, I, I need it's to know. It's it's phenomenal. <laughs> I can't believe how well it works, but that kind of stuff is happening at Jagfest. See, the Jag's an interesting console. Um, like Ravi said, I mean, it's pretty much the only system that I actually, you know, I'm aiming to get a full library for. Oof. and I think I'm only a couple of games away from now. You have Atari cards um, yet? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I got, that, I got that one quite early on, actually. Okay, so um, saved a bundle yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've seen the prices it goes for now. Um, why do you think the Jag in particular, I mean, it was obviously a system that was a commercial failure, but why do you think the the homebrew and the retro community in particular have kind of taken that under their wings? Because it's got a big like fan base now, hasn't it? And especially in the, the kind of homebrew scene. Yeah. So I've always kind of thought that when you look at the types of games on there and you look at like the people that are into it, it to me, it feels like this weird consoleized continuation of like the Atari ST and possibly even the Amiga to a degree. You know, it's it's very a lot of Eurocentric developers that are really into this kind of continuation. Obviously, that style of computer, the Atari ST and all that, they kind of went away by that point by the time the Jaguar was out, right? The IBM yeah. PC was taking off. And I guess looking back, this just kind of feels like this weird natural extension and continuation of the platform uh, in a way. I, I It's not the same, but it does kind of... In some ways, I've always thought like, hmm, the Jaguars to the Atari ST is like the CD32 is to like the Amiga or something, you know, it just, it just has that vibe to it. But the, yeah. And I guess having guys like Jeff Minter and that making games for it probably helped. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, it actually kind of continues on with like the Nuon, which in many ways, even though it has very few games, it is just kind of like Jaguar 2 in a lot of ways. You know, you got your Iron Soldier on there, another Jeff Minter Tempest on there uh merlin racing which i guess is the sequel to atari carts stuff like that it's just it's kind of crazy to see but really the thing that kind of blew my mind about jagfest is like i was like why is there this festival celebrating the jaguar that's been going on for 20 years and like the guy running it's pretty much told me that in that area there was an atari warehouse back in the 90s uh that had a lot of jaguar hardware there when it was you know i guess on the market uh, that warehouse had burned down at some point and kids in the neighborhood got over there and basically pulled out Jaguars that were still functioning, but sometimes partially damaged 
oh, out wow. of the place. And like, apparently like this whole neighborhood was just full of people that picked up old Jaguars from the old warehouse. And they just <laughs> suddenly now it's like, Hey, free console. Everybody's into playing the Jaguar games. Uh, so that specific area of Germany is really into the Jag. And that's kind of part of the reason. <laughs> Wow, that's guy. I haven't heard that before. That's crazy. Oh, They're probably mounted, the biggest concentrated. <laughs> yeah. Jacks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he actually, uh, the guy that runs it is a super nice guy. He actually has one of the melted Jaguars that he always has on showcase at Jagfest. And it's, it's fun to see. It's a very interesting console. Even the story about the fact that it's, um, it's shells were ended up, you know, used in dental equipment oh, in the end. It's uh, very bizarre. They always have one of those there too at the yeah. uh, Jagfest. So it's, uh, it is indeed a thing. You know, talking about kind of um, obscure and weird consoles, you mentioned the new one there, and, you know, we talked about 3DO, and, I, you know, are you a fan of, like, obscure fail consoles? And are there any, like, systems that you will set up, you know, like, games that are only available on these kind of obscure consoles? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, I pretty much appreciate all consoles, I'd say, but one that I, I've always found really fascinating, of course, is the 3DO, just based on when it hit, it was... It was so close to being a success, I feel, in a lot of ways. It was really just brought down, I guess, primarily by the price, I'd say, yeah. um, because there was interest in it. And I remember wanting to, wanting it back in the day as well. But obviously, again, price. Uh, but there's there's some legitimately good games in the on the 3DO. It's a very classy feeling system. It does things in an interesting way. I mean, it obviously has its limitations. It's very poor at handling, say, 2D platformer games. Uh, but it was good with, with 3D at the time. And I do like to fiddle around on there and play some of those games on the 3DO. But also, I guess, you know, just really, honestly, everything. I mean, I'm really into the PC Engine, which was obviously not a failure in Japan, but that was not successful in the West. And I think that just has a phenomenal library. And I even enjoy stuff like the CDI, which is not a good machine, really. But again, the library is very fascinating and just bizarre to explore. And I really enjoy that. Yeah, because CDI was originally meant to be one of those, um, the, the market that never took off a living room multimedia yes. player, wasn't it, before it got changed box. into games. <laughs> that was it, which nobody wanted. No, nobody wanted that. <laughs> well, did you kind of think all these odd games and stuff need to be then covered and uh how, how did you found uh df retro oh yes i mean that really just comes down to i love retro gaming and i had wanted to talk about it on the channel for a while i guess uh and my boss was always kind of like yeah you know it's i don't know if there's anybody interested in this uh, so it pretty much came down to me just kind of having to prove him wrong, so to speak. So I just did a very small video, that Quake video first, which was only like six minutes long at the time, which is crazy considering just last week I finished up a video that's almost three hours long. Uh, so it's come a long way, but it was successful enough where it was kind of, I was able to continue making it. And I think the second video was Shenmue and it just kind of went on from there and people really seemed to get into it. And, which very much made me happy since a lot of folks enjoyed it. And the idea was sort of to come at it. Like I wanted to share obviously history and information about the game and talk about the games themselves, but also sort of look at the technology behind it, like see how they were made, but also compare with various versions of games that existed. These are things I had done in the past uh, just on my own or with a friend, we just look at different versions of different games running on consoles and kind of marvel at the differences. And I was like, 
I think this is interesting enough to put into a video and kind of get the information out there and just share it. And that was kind of the thing that pushed me to keep going and it's worked. It must, it must require like, um, you know, a huge amount of research, but also having a big games collection yourself and tons of capture devices and yeah, <laughs> kind that, of cards. That's the thing is I spent a lot of time optimizing my capture setup for this kind of thing. So at the moment, I have so many consoles hooked up, like over 20, just ready to go, fed into one of four capture devices. So at any point I can say like, all right, I need to capture something from a Sega Saturn or a Jaguar. I can just grab the game from the shelf, pop it in and just go. And it takes, you know, 30 seconds at most and I'm capturing. And that's really crucial for getting this stuff done in a timely fashion, especially with these comparisons. You must have a pretty impressive game and console collection then kind of talk us through what you've got and how you keep it and any, any highlights in there any things you're most proud of um i guess the thing that i i probably put the most love and attention into curating is i have a really large japanese mega drive collection uh because i just love the mega drive i think i'm at like around 220 games at this point so uh, and the reason I love those is, I mean, I love that system in general. It's a fantastic machine with a really rich, interesting library, but also there's Japanese packages in particular. I mean, you guys are familiar with it, right? Like just the quality of the artwork and just the way games were packaged back then. It's, it's really different from what you see today. Like every box is a work of art on its own. Yeah. Uh, with very little text, even like noting what system it's for. And it was really a, uh, it's just really attractive in that way. But so it's definitely one of my favorites, but I, I pretty much have all the mainstays, you know, obviously we talked 3DO, Jaguar, CDI, Dreamcast, Famicom, Super Famicom, every portable you can imagine just about, uh, you know, all, all the various Nintendo platforms, Sega stuff, get into some Neo Geo in there and, you know, everything on up from there. It's just, it's a good mix of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess really it is Mega Drive, Saturn, and PlayStation 1 and 2 are probably my favorite to collect for. Well, you do a lot of coverage of kind of gaming events with a Eurogamer, and yeah. uh, I, I saw you did EGX and stuff. Do you think events are going to come back in full force after the pandemic? That's a good question. I I certainly hope so, but I don't know when and how that's going to happen. I feel like it's going to have to be a slow thing, maybe start with a smaller scale event uh, with sort of a limited number of people allowed in. But that's, that's really, it's very difficult to say at this point. And it's weird because I was traveling like crazy before this, you know, going to all these different events. And then it's just like, all of a sudden it just stopped and it's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. We had like, I think it was seven booked or something around the world. And you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And especially like, you know, you being in Germany with Gamescom. Oh yeah. Something like that. Uh, something on that scale. It will be interesting to see if it, if it's going to take a while to get back to that number of people. Yeah. Those Gamescom public days are just absurd. Normally just the amount of people crammed into that place. I, I just don't see how that could work today. You know, it's interesting, though, because obviously those events were epic, but I think there is also something very nice about the smaller kind of community oh, yeah. events, like like Jagfest, like you mentioned. Absolutely. I love those. I, I especially miss, uh, in Germany here, they always have these uh, retro bursas, 
which is sort of like a, you know, um, a flea market for retro video games and like sellers from all around Germany all come together to these specific events and open up their tables and they like rent out an entire school uh, with all the twisting hallways and you're going up and down and all over the place. And there's just table after table of games to find. I loved going to those so much. And yeah, obviously that did not happen last year. I really want to see that again. Yeah. We have some small ones here in the UK. There's one actually in our town of Nottingham and yeah, going there kind of feels a bit like, you know, back in the early nineties again, when it was quite a a smaller industry and, you know, people had set them up in like marketplaces and that kind of thing. It's exactly, it's completely different from like the big shows and I love it. I miss it. Charity shops well, this- have been my uh, staple recently. <laughs> I've been going around looking in uh, all the shops of old people and finding a few video games. So you can get a little a little kind of hit at the moment. <laughs> there, there is some weirdness. Uh, there's this one shop called Kuschelmuschel here in Germany. That's um, There's actually two of them, right? One, one is Kuschelmuschel, the other is Kuschelmuschel Reloaded. They are about a block away from each other. And they both exist in this very, very small German town out in the middle of nowhere you got to drive like an hour to get out there from where i'm at uh and they have they've had the weirdest things there and i think some of it might be surplus from back in the day with like nearby american military stationed over here because you'll find tons of sealed ntscu games like i picked up a ton of sega genesis and saturn games from there for very low prices that were like just american and the fact that you'd find these two stores, which I think they were related at one point and then they kind of split up for some reason. And now they're two stores and they're right. You can basically see one from the other. Uh, but it's this, it's like this weird Bermuda triangle of retro gaming <laughs> that, <laughs> that I love visiting, but it's, <laughs> I love it when you find places like that, you know, you see just games in places you wouldn't expect. I remember I went into a pawnbroker's shop once and, you know, there was like an area where they're selling secondhand jewelry oh, yeah. and then there's a shelf next to it full of Philips CDI games. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> I just bought the whole shelf. Yes. <laughs> really bizarre. <laughs> well, you also cover um, the micro consoles and obviously we had kind of a spate of those coming out oh, in the yeah. last few years. Um, do you think we're going to see more micro consoles or do you think it's a phase that's kind of past now? Yeah, it does kind of feel like a phase that's passed somewhat other than maybe the micro arcade machines. Like I think uh, Sega found a lot of success with their Astro City Mini last year. Uh, I I mean, that was primarily a Japanese product, but it was at least brought out into the West thanks to Limited Run. Uh, And then Taito just announced a new version of like it's, it's their Egret 2 arcade machine coming out next year that even has a screen that rotates so you can play in proper Tate mode. And I feel like that and slightly bigger miniaturized arcade cabinets, I guess like the arcade one up stuff maybe as well, seems to be finding a pretty good audience because that that provides something that's kind of different and tactile in a way. Whereas the little micro consoles, mini consoles there, it's fun, but I feel like they've kind of covered most of the ground where they could find success. And some of them are probably too difficult to pull off. Like everybody's asked for like, say the N64 mini, but yeah. just the nature of that, I don't think it would work. I don't think it would work. There's a lot of four-player games on there that people remember. Manufacturing those controllers, it's expensive. I mean, they're complicated controllers and those analog sticks and everything in there. I just feel like, plus, they couldn't actually have used the same SOC in that one, I, I don't think, because there's not a good N64 emulation solution for that class of hardware. 
So I know uh, one of your videos was really popular about the um, PlayStation Mini, and that kind of burst the bubble of mini consoles, oh. didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, the PlayStation Mini really that that actually really bothers me in retrospect because you think like it probably didn't sell that well, uh, and Sony probably looks at that and says, "Oh man, nobody cares about these old games," which is the wrong conclusion to take from that. The conclusion they should be saying is, "Oh, we didn't do a very good job on this." the the emulation is poor uh we used versions of games that perhaps we should not have like why would you put the pow games on there but then output everything at 60 hertz anyway it looks awful uh so they didn't make a great product there but then yeah like i don't think that they would understand that the product itself wasn't good necessarily i mean maybe i'm sure there's people inside but i'm sure the conclusion is more like uh, people don't want these old games it kind of makes me think that if it was a success, they may have done the PS2 Mini after that, but now probably oh, not. See, that would have been so cool too, just like mm. with, that, with that tower form factor. Uh, a little mini PS2 would have been awesome. I'm waiting for the new one Mini. <laughs> you could just make that the size of uh, a regular PS2 and it would already be a Mini. <laughs> um, do, do you get like much uh, interaction or, or chat with like speedrunners or, or people who are students on like video game courses about uh, DF retro videos? Actually, yeah, surprisingly. I, I've talked to a lot of people online involved in like courses on this stuff. And also a good friend of mine here in Germany is uh, he's actually a professor at a university where they teach a lot of game design and have a whole like game program there. It's a huge part of them. Uh, and a lot of people in this area come to study there and go on to work at large game companies and everything. And uh, I've given some talks there before, you know, I visited them during some of the game jams and like also when they would actually showcase their semester projects and stuff like that. And it's really cool to see uh, all these younger folks like coming in and just so much talent, just creating this amazing stuff. I kind of like, if I can help in any way or like talk to them or, share some insight then you know all the better but yeah it's it's a really cool thing well you've done full documentaries like um legacy of street fighter which is actually on dvd um do you plan on doing any more of these like really in-depth documentaries oh yeah 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 we're definitely going to be doing actually so one of the ones that i guess is currently in production that we're working on is the one uh the documentary on turrican where we've gone and interviewed like pretty much all the main factor five guys from the past and uh trying to put something together with that which will be shipping along with the turrican anthology like collector's edition so i'm excited about that i also have some others in my back pocket that i'm working on where i have the filmed footage and i just need to sit down and spend the time to actually put it together and i imagine they take a lot of time yeah that's the problem it's really it's tough to justify that sometimes in terms of timing just because it does take a long time to make, but I do enjoy making them. I guess that's ideal being in Germany as well, being able to do the uh, Turrican one. Oh yeah. There's a lot of those guys are still here. Obviously some of them are out in California. We had to do like a remote shoot and have somebody else handle the filming for like Julian, for instance, um, because he's not here. Um, And then, you know, but it's been good. I get to meet some of those guys and really enjoy chatting with them had Chris Holzbeck here last no two years ago, I guess. Uh, and it was great to chat with him and hear all about his stories of working on those old machines back in the day. And I, I think actually I, I even asked him like, do you prefer the uh, super NES sound chip or the mega drive sound chip? 
he went with the Mega Drive. But of course, Amiga's is mm. tr- his true love. That's the thing. But then, though, they all sounded so different, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. And th- you know, that's another thing I, I love about this. This is something that you don't see anymore, right? Like today, games just sound good. You can kind of do anything with it. Uh, obviously, there are ways to do some special stuff, especially with like 3D audio and all that. But fundamentally, you can kind of do what you want. But back then, that was not the case. And I love the amount of games being made for old systems these days and seeing the way that they push the technology to the next level. Uh, like, you know, Xeno Crisis is a great example of this from the Bitmap Bureau. Like, that game sounds incredible. They got Savaged Regime to do the music for that. And, you know, he'd always done music for the Mega Drive. It sounded amazing. But to actually hear it in a game, it's just like, wow. Yeah, and I think the more time goes on, obviously, you know, people have had, like, three decades, maybe four in some cases, to kind of learn exactly the intricacies of the hardware and that, that just make it sing in ways that it couldn't do in its heyday. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about talking to a lot of these guys that worked on games back in the day. I mean, there wasn't really an internet like we know it. There often wasn't even a network. Like, you know, the guys at Rare were literally just sharing things around on floppy disks. Like they're working on Donkey Kong Country and sharing data around on floppy disks. There's no internet to look things up and say, well, how the heck do you do this? You just got to figure it out on your own and and make something. And I think, you know, it's difficult. It's not for everybody, but it did lead to some really interesting results and like variation in the types of games that were being made. And I don't think that's really something we could see again. And it doesn't make sense either anymore, but it was cool for a while. Yeah, you know, we've spoke to the guys from Rare and they've said, you know, in that kind of barn they were working in, in the middle of like the countryside, a nuclear bomb could have gone off and they wouldn't have realized (laughs) for a couple of weeks. (laughs) Oh man, that's great. (laughs) Well, obviously, you know, talking about kind of um, modern games or, you know, new retro titles that are coming out now, what do you kind of feel about, because we have a lot of physical releases now, particularly in the, the retro scene. What are your kind of your thoughts on digital games and redeem codes as opposed to actual physical releases? Yeah, I'm definitely someone that sort of fights for physical releases. I really, I prefer that format myself. I like to have quick access to it, Um, especially, you know, I'm finding doing these retro videos, especially a lot of times I need to pull something off a shelf and quickly capture it. So it's beyond just playing. It's actually useful for me. If I have to download something, you try to connect to PlayStation 3 back on the network and download stuff, you can do it, but it is slow and tedious. Um, and you know, I just enjoy having these games actually on a disc or a cart whenever possible. So I definitely support those practices and tend to buy a lot of my games that way. And I think there's a, there's kind of this misconception about modern games that, oh, there's just so many patches out these days. So what you get on the disc isn't complete. And this is occasionally true, especially with some big high profile games, but by and large games are actually still released in really good condition. And when you're looking at the smaller retro style indie games that get physical releases, they're pretty much perfect on the disc or cart. So it's just something you kind of have to be aware of. But in general, it's not a big problem. Well, is there any kind of trends that you kind of um, are foreseeing in retro? Anything that you think is going to be big over the next couple of years that we should maybe be, uh, you know, maybe systems we should be getting into collecting for now or anything like that? Anything in the pipeline? Well, I think what you always have to think about is what there's always this period with retro games and you guys have seen it where, okay, new system comes out. The last gen system is now the old thing. And there's a period where you think, Oh man, nobody wants these games anymore. They all start to be sold for very low prices. You can find them everywhere. 
But then there's a point where the nostalgia starts to kick in. People start looking back and reflecting on the games that were great and start thinking, you know what? I should probably get a copy of this. Uh, And then the prices start to crawl up. We definitely started seeing that even with systems like the uh, PlayStation 3, right? If you look, there's a lot of PS3 games where the the prices are just shooting upwards in surprising ways. Uh, Even stuff like the Wii U, which it's not even 10 years old, but a lot of those games are starting to creep up. Um, Obviously, you know, it's a little bit late on things like PS2, GameCube and Xbox, but not completely too late. There's still plenty of value to be had there. And, you know, the DS, the PSP. These, this is kind of the era that I'm kind of looking at, but I always think it it makes sense to to think about it in that way. Even if something may not seem like, oh, it's 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 available everywhere. It's not that interesting right now. Uh, just try to think about the future. And thus far, it's actually served me very well. <laughs> yeah, like the, even the 360 a, a few years ago, they were just... They, well, they were just, going for 50p and then uh, yeah, they just give it away, man. Yeah. Like you go to these shops and they got like stacks of this stuff and nobody wants it. Um, but there's a lot of good games in there and they, it can be had for cheap if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. I remember when they were practically giving away Jaguar games back in the late nineties. So, uh, I regret I, not getting I more of those. I think I saw <laughs> one that had a five pound label on it. I think they were selling Jaguars for like five or 15 pounds in Virgin. And then it had a label of that, you know, a boxed one. And the label said like 500. Uh, that's what they were selling it for. But it had the original price tag of five pounds, I think. I was like, was that like 20 years ago? Yeah, I was like, God. Yeah. I think they had some <laughs> leftover stock and they were just trying to get rid of the Jaguars. I've seen this so many times now. And it's it's always fascinating. Because uh, I usually kept up with games during, I, th- I think starting around the, the late PlayStation Saturn and 64 era, I was pretty much buying new stuff as it came out. Um, so, or even it was already a little bit used at that point. Like I got a ton of my Sega Saturn games. Like, uh, I think the, the funniest story there is I got a couple working designs games, uh, and you know, those go for a lot now typically, but I always enjoyed what working designs did. Uh, but I picked out like Albert Odyssey and one of the other ones, I think it might've been dragon force or something else, but they literally had thrown the cases in the dumpster at a local GameStop. And my friends were there working at the shop and they had the discs and they're like, oh, these discs are like penning out if you want them. And I was like, sure. Do you have the cases? And like, oh, I think we just threw them out. So I go, go back, go out in the back and find them there. And sure enough, all these cases came out with a ton of these fully boxed Sega Saturn games that I loved back then. Uh, But now you look at what they're worth and it's just, it's, it's insane. (laughs) Send me back in the DeLorean with a big suitcase. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's been incredible talking to you, John, and we've uh, really enjoyed, you know, uh, geeking out about all things retro with you. Um, what's coming up from DF Retro? Anything that we you can talk about that we can look out for soon? Oh, uh, well, so we started this new Patreon program and got a lot of support for for the retro stuff. So that means I'm back to doing monthly episodes of DF Retro. Uh, I just put out one last week that was for the patrons, but it's going to be coming out soon. And it's uh, we look at the launch of PlayStation 1 in extreme detail, cover every single game in every region and do all the platform comparisons. There's a lot of Jaguar in there actually. Uh, And that's going to be coming out publicly over time soon. I think we're actually going to break it into three parts because it's almost three hours long. Yeah. And then after that, we have some ideas for stuff we want to do, but it should be exciting and fun. But first we got to get through 
the new game stuff, like the E3 stuff coming up and things like that. So I think as of recording right now, it's just before the embargo for Ratchet and Clank on PlayStation 5, and I've been working on that. So that comes out, the, the embargo hits tomorrow. So fantastic well it sounds like you're, you're keeping busy yeah, absolutely and you know we love how in-depth your work is as well um, we can't wait to see that playstation documentary that sounds awesome so john keep up the incredible work um it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you for coming on thank you for having me guys really appreciate it